We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. He turns. He fires for the win. He's got the bucket at the buzzer. Weather back to Bibby. Has the open shot. Ladies and gentlemen, up on those feet, put those hands together. And we'll meet tonight starting five for your Sacramento Kings. Welcome to the Kings Beat Podcast. I am James Ham, your Kings Insider for ESPN 1320 and the Kings Beat. Joining me, Mr. Brendan Nunes from the Kings Herald and, of course, the Kings Pulse podcast. Brendan, how are you on this Thursday morning? I am doing all right, James. You know, I'm a little unhappy with the Debo Samuel situation. I'm not going to lie, but I know that's not the focal point of this podcast or anything. Just know you're a Niner guy. I can't help but be a little unhappy with that one. To quote uh, the great... David Stern, uh, life is life is a negotiation, and uh, I, I, there's nothing new, right? It's just him going back and forth with media members at this point, uh, refuting, partially refuting, like just yeah, it's just weird, right? Stressful, it's stressful, it's all. Yeah, from a fan's point of view, you know, like yeah, when I, when I got very into basketball and covering it, you like lose your fandom in the process. So I converted that to football. I was never very into football. I like the Niners. I keep up. Like, I just watch every Niner game. That's pretty much it. And, you know, deep playoff games or anything like that. But my fandom totally converted into football. So I'm just a little hurt and uncomfortable, I guess. Okay. I I get it. Yeah. You know what? Like, my fandom, you know, waned, like, years ago because of this, uh, because of covering a team uh, for the NBA fully. I mean, that's what happens. It's sort of an interesting discussion that – I I don't think people understand. Like as a media member, you have to remain stoic. That's like there is no like fist bumps. There is no like I I know we had somebody kick a table once or twice, which like everyone looks like, bro, why are you kicking the table? Um, And I know that there was like when I first started doing this, there was somebody who couldn't put that aside, who cheered and got into it and got upset when the Kings lost. And it was like, Man, you can't do that. That's that's not the them's are not the rules. Uh, so you lose your fandom, and it it happens quietly. Uh, and and the next thing you know, you turn around, and you know it's just 
you end up having like people that you enjoy talking to and people that um, some people who become your friends uh, within the industry. Uh, but at the end of the day, you do lose like that, that love of watching uh, that love of, uh, I don't even want to say it's the love. It's the ability to celebrate something positive or negative. Uh, you have to remove that. And so it, it's, it's an interesting process. How's that gone for you? It's okay. Like, uh, like you said, it happens quietly, you know? And then at some point I realized like it was always my outlet, I guess, basketball of yeah. the way that I could just escape from anything reality, I guess. Um, so yeah, at some point it turned into a job, which is a dream. I'm certainly not complaining, but it, I don't know. You don't even realize when it happens. Just at some point I realized that was the reality of what it is now. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it seeps in, it slowly happens. And then next thing you know, you turn around and, and that means that, like when you're there, you can't be that at all. So when you're at a, when you're at a practice, you can't be fanboy. Like I've seen that too. I've seen fanboy. Uh, my first year, there was a guy who would show up to, um, like practice and media sessions, and he would stand in the back. And everyone's I don't even remember who it was. I just remember that he. It was almost like he thought he was a church. And so when someone started saying something, he goes, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yep, yep, I hear that. And it was like, what in, like, what is happening? What is happening here? Um, and I, I don't even remember who that was, uh, but that was a weird thing. Like, I've seen, like, lots and lots of different versions of people who come in to cover a team and, uh, you know, the Kings have been gracious enough to let some people in that maybe they shouldn't have and maybe that they shouldn't let in anytime again. Like even right now, there are people that I, I wouldn't let in the door uh, and I would just kick them out and say, look, you, you don't do the job. You don't you don't ask questions. You don't you know, you're basically stealing other people's information. You know, you know, you're not participating. You're what are you here for? Are you here to get a free ticket and free dinner and free popcorn and soda and water all night long? Hot tea. Is that why you're here? Because I'm not cider. quite sure why you're here. Cider. Oh, the cider. <laughs> the secret The secret cider. Uh, yeah. I, I think I was lucky in not growing up a Kings fan that it helped. I didn't have any sense of like starstruck at any point, you know, that I, I think was kind of surprising to me. Like, there was because I grew up a Celtics guy and like grew up around the Warriors, for example, that like the most recent home game that the Warriors were in town for um, at Golden One Center. We were waiting for, I believe it was Dante DiVincenzo and Dante takes a little while. So I, I went to go to the restroom and like almost bump into Draymond Green when I'm going around a corner. And I think that was maybe a little bit of like a moment, but, you know, keep it totally to yourself. And Did he yell like, at you? Holy crap. No, not at all. Don't take he the moved, corner so fast. He moved out of my way. <laughs> Don't take the corner so fast. Yeah. Um, and this is the game where he had been screaming <laughs> at the refs the entire night. Uh, very intense person, obviously. But He's intense, but he's fun for media. Like, he grabs a mic and he sits back. And he, he thinks he's like a lounge act. Um, mm. I've always enjoyed Draymond because I've covered a ton of Warriors going down for playoffs and stuff. Um, yeah. yeah 
like this this whole discussion. I think this is what we're we're here to do. Like specifically during the summer, we're going to share some of the ways that we think about things, a way that we see the world from behind the scenes, and um, we're going to dig into some of these things because even like today, we're today's show is is mainly based on. Um, with the NBA draft, we're going to start full fledged draft coverage. Uh, we're going to go back and forth between like player profiles, kind of like what we have done with Sabonis and Fox, but also bringing you back to, um, you know, the draft on one day and, you know, free agency and we'll, we'll bounce around. We'll cover a lot of stuff here. Um, but I, I think this is one of the things that we can do. We can sit here and discuss things like, you know, the first time you walk in and your media and, and being starstruck, like, I've never been starstruck from a uh, from a current player. Like I've been in I've been in scrums with everyone you can possibly imagine. Um, like I I interviewed Kobe Bryant multiple times. Um, I had a sit down with uh, Patrick Ewing one time. Uh, Kevin McHale, just me and Kevin McHale riffing. Um, I, I think I've said this before the Dwight Howard interview that was very strange, very very strange. Uh, I've heard this. Uh, just uh, spark notes. Yeah, yeah spark notes. Um, I like. I have been collecting quotes to do a big man book forever, and I have quotes from man, uh, from Hakeem, from uh, Alonzo Mourning, Patrick Ewing, Kevin McHale, Kevin Durant, Dirk Nowitzki, Tim Duncan, uh, Bob Lanier. Uh, like name that big man and I've been collecting quotes. So, you know, there, there's this weird point. We talked about a little bit on the, on the uh, podcast last week. I mean, on Tuesday where we were talking about DeMarcus Cousins, there's this weird point in the league where there aren't, there's only one true big man and that's Dwight Howard. Like there, I mean, there are guys, but there wasn't like superstars. There was, you know, we had this point where, all of the the great big men from the you know late eighties and nineties and early two thousands all retired, and there was this void in the league of superstar bigs. And so I pulled, um, I was able to get Dwight Howard when he was with the Rockets, and we sat down maybe five or six minutes, maybe a little bit longer. I don't think it was that long. Um, I'll have to find the audio; it's hiding somewhere. And. Uh, like I, I was just, I was very upfront and said like, I'm working on this and it's a story, you know, a book about, and I, I still haven't started writing the book just so people know the book is not about to get released. Um, but it was sort of like the way that the big man disappeared and how Dwight Howard was this bridge. And then really it was because of cousins like coming into the league and showing like a different view, a different version of the big man and showing us something that we had never really seen before and sort of, the way that the big man died and then came back out of the gully and, and came out and reinvented itself, which is what we're seeing now, which is really cool. Um, but the, uh, I sat down with Dwight. We had a conversation. It was specifically about this was nothing about him. And then I went to leave. We're off the record where like my, my recorder's off and he's like, Hey, make me look good. And I'm like, well, it's, it's not about you. It's, it's about, you know, the big man in general. He goes, no, no make me look good. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Like, and then I, I thought like when I walked away, it was like, it was really one of the strangest moments I've ever had as a journalist. 
covering someone because I'm like, what exactly does he mean? And I didn't go back to him and go, I, I did say, well, like, look, this is specifically a book about like the big man in general, not about you. And it's like, okay, yeah, yeah. Make me look good. And, and I, I think at the end of the day, what I've come to the conclusion is maybe he was talking about like grammatically make him look good. Like don't make my quote look like I'm a dumbass. Uh, maybe that's what he was going for, but it was strange. He's still waiting for the book, James. It's possible. Quite is waiting for the book. It's very possible. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I mean, it, like when you're in the league and you're covering players and you're, you're doing all this, it really does like it's very different because you you lose like this whole thing. Well, anyway, my point was the only time that I remember getting starstruck was I was on the court my first year. We were, it was in pregame, and we were way out on the court because the teams hadn't come out yet or something. I don't know. And it was like me and Sean Cunningham and Jason Ross, and I didn't know anyone that well at this point, and I was just kind of hanging out with them. And uh, I think it was Atlanta. The Atlanta Hawks were in town, and um, because I, I believe Dominique Wilkins at that time was on their broadcast team, or he might still be. I, I'm not sure. Anyway, Dominique walked up into our group and like out I didn't see him walk up and all of a sudden he's standing right next to me like, Hey, what's going on, guys? And I'm like, Holy S, that's Dominique. Like that's that literally is like Dominique standing next to me. Um and I wasn't just the biggest like Dominique fan ever, but it was one of those moments where you're like, Okay, this is this is crazy. Yeah, just realizing what's going on, right? Like I have a friend that I started doing a lot of this with uh and it's celtics related stuff and and he's done well for himself as well in this and there's so often that him and i are telling each other stories and we have to be like listen to what you just said yeah and how crazy that is if you were to tell yourself that you'd be in that situation a year ago you know like the tyree situation for me for example like yeah the same day that tyrese called me out i had a conversation with sam amick like picking his brain a little bit and talked about building relationships and he was like well to be honest you know the reality of it is is like you're probably gonna have to wait a year and then ty called me out the same night and like something kind of started at that point i thought that was a little funny but your bro fest your bro fest yeah. with ty yeah um i think there was also a moment like my first year i would sit down with paul westfall in pregame every single game and then sometimes like the media session would end and i would sit there and hang out with paul we ended up becoming very close very good friends while he was in Sacramento, we would go out to lunch during the summer and um, just incredible basketball stories with Paul. But I was sitting uh, on the baseline at Arco and um, Marv Albert and Jim Gray walked up. And so I'm sitting next to Paul and they just like, hey, what's going on, Paul? And Paul's like, hey, this is this is James Ham. He covers Kings and I'm shaking hands. And next thing you know, we're like in a regular normal conversation with Marv Albert, Jim Gray, and Paul Westfall sitting on the court at Arco, and I was sitting there like, like in the middle of the conversation. Like it wasn't like I was some, like someone that was pushed off to the side. I was literally sitting there having a conversation with these guys, and it popped into my head: this is surreal. Like I'm literally like that's Marv Albert and Jim Gray. Whether you like Jim Gray or not, it doesn't matter. Jim Gray. I mean, he's literally the guy who interviewed Pete Rose during the all-star game and asked him if he thought he should be there or, or, you know, about his gambling issues, like during an all-star game in San Francisco. Like, I mean, Jim Gray is like one of the, the, like 
he's probably a Hall of Fame sideline reporter. You know, when you think of sideline reporters, it's uh, Craig Sager, it's, and then it's Jim Gray, and then, you know, maybe Michelle Tafoya and Hannah Storm or uh, who was it that used to do Monday Night Football. Like there's like there's only a few that you like instantly think of, and Jim Gray is one of them. And so yeah, interesting, interesting. Look at this, we've gone sideways again, Brennan. We we do this now. Yeah, I don't know how it happens, James. Yeah, you the tangent. So good about staying on topic. I don't know. Yeah, it, we're. <laughs> this is the King's Beat podcast where tangents become segments. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, so. On that note, let's let's get to some of the the basics. Um, which way we do? If you're watching on YouTube, uh, go down below and give us a thumbs up and subscribe. Um, we're we're doing really well on subscribers and everything, so that's really cool. Uh, number two, uh, we announced on Tuesday we're pushing back the off the record with the King Beat Virtual Happy Hour Part Five to next Thursday, April twenty eighth, from five thirty to seven thirty. Uh, invites will go out to all of those who are premium subscribers to the King's Beat. You need to jump on board. We'll have a great guest. Uh, we'll have a lot of fun. We talk about stuff like what we've been talking about today, but um, maybe stuff that we wouldn't normally talk about on the record because, you know, stories are stories, and um, sometimes they are uh, not for public consumption. And uh, we we get a little loose. We We chat about crazy stuff. Um, let's see, we have the King's Beat merch shop. Um, it's down in the description. It's also in the emails uh, that you're receiving. And we now have a promo code, uh, I think until the end of April, maybe a little bit longer, but uh, it is KBPOD, uh, all capital letters, capital K, capital B, capital P, capital O, capital D. Uh, that will save you 15% on all of your uh, King's Beat merchandise. And uh, so that's cool. And then lastly, um, we have the survey. We've had a ton of responses to the survey. Some really good questions in the survey, which is great. Um, but do us a favor if you can, hop in, uh, do the King's Beat survey. Uh, it just helps us uh, know who it is that we're, we're talking to out there and how we can better serve your needs. And uh, yeah, there are some, some really interesting um, questions in there that, you know, again, maybe some of those are happy hour questions, uh, where we could have a honest discussion about some certain things on the happy hour, uh, that people want to know about from like behind the scenes. Um, you know, there's a lot of broadcast questions. There's a couple of people asking about Matina. Uh, yeah, there's some interesting stuff going on there. Um, and, uh, whether or not we discuss all of that, uh, on the podcast or not, um, we, we will discuss a lot of it, and we do discuss a lot of it, and I don't think we shy away from any topic. Uh, that leads us to um, the latest loss for the Sacramento Kings. And, uh, you know, we've, we talked about this last week. We, I think we talked about it um, maybe a little bit on Tuesday, too. The Sacramento Kings, um, coming out of the season, they let Ken Catanella go, uh, assistant GM, who is their, uh, was their cap genius and has done a really good job of keeping them sort of flexible, cap flexible, moving forward. Um, Joe Resendez, their head athletic trainer, um, lost his job. wasn't His contract wasn't renewed. Um, Alex Sigwa, who is the media director, uh, was not brought back for this season. And then um, yesterday evening, I, I got a phone call at like 6 o'clock uh, that um, from – 
Rasan Gathers, uh, Gathers, uh, who is the the king's lone media director, uh, and actually lone full time member of the media relations staff. Uh, and uh, Rasan informed me that he is moving on and going to the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, first and foremost, like super happy for uh, for Son. He's a good guy. He is. In case people don't know who he is. He's the um, he's the guy with the long dreads that you see uh, walking the sidelines that you see in some of our media relations conversations. Um, he's been with the Kings for the last nine seasons. He came to the Kings from the Denver Nuggets with uh, Pete D'Alessandro, but then stayed on um, through the Chris Clark era. And then it was basically him and Alex the last couple of years. And he was going to be running the show here in Sacramento. But he got a VP opportunity in um, in Portland, and it was time for him to go. And so, super excited for him. Um, but this is more of that cultural, that change, that like instability within the franchise that we talk about. And uh, I don't know what are your thoughts, Brendan? Because before I kind of like go on about what happens next, like what are your thoughts? Because uh, Rasan has been one of those guys that you kind of have to like get in good with if you want to get in the door as a as a new media member rasan is was the guy that i had to get in good with for sure um yeah first day i definitely got told i think by you uh, just he's the one with the trades you'll know who i'm talking about and instantly when i walked in the room i was like this has to be who james is talking about right here um and rasan i mean great guy like absolutely helped me out through the whole process of gave me some learning experiences and was very kind and helping me through the whole process really and getting me the adore initially and it was interesting to me to just come to understand that those are the people that it's important to really build relationships with and there's an aspect of obviously starting all over with whoever ends up taking that spot but happy for Rasan that he got a bigger opportunity with with the Blazers and it's you know it's hard for me to speak on what it means since it's still so new for me because individually like for myself it just means building a new relationship you know but I think that's the same thing that all the players have to go through with their the media relations team like from what I can tell you know there's a lot of interactions they have with Rasan and a relationship there and that has to be rebuilt and like you said just a lot of turnover that goes from top to bottom yeah and so so people understand like there is a media re- relations member either alex or rasan that would go on every single road trip that has to go to all-star weekend one of them has to go to all-star weekend if like davion mitchell's there um they have to go to every event or a player's there um it's a thankless job it's um in sacramento it's an understaffed job it always has been well it hasn't always been when I first started, um, there was a like head of media relations, which was Darren May, and then he had Chris Clark and Devin Blankenship, and um, you know uh, underneath him, and then on top of that, uh, they had Daryl Arada, who is the the best stats guy in the league, um, who is absolutely off the charts incredible. So they had like this group of four people. You know, some of these guys would go on the planes. Um, some of these guys would, you know, they take turns doing different things. Um, 
you know, some of them had to write like the game day program and stuff like that. Uh, but also like we get a game book for every single game that has stats. It has who they're playing, their last matchups, box scores, like all that. There, This is a team that does that. Um, the last couple of years, uh, they got down to basically a two, a two man team. And then they have an intern. Uh, it was for a long time. It was Michelangelo. Uh, and Michael went on to go take a job like Rasan is, um, but with the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, and you know, so that was, that was a big blow then. Um, Avery is our, is our current intern wishing good things for Avery. Cause now it's like totally unsettled above him, uh, with what's happening. But, uh, like this team, this group of guys, like they put in so much work. And they're the people that we deal with all the time. They become your friends. They become like part of the family. They're part of the media family. They're just on the king side. And what they are is they're they're gatekeepers, right? And, and so not only do they keep you keep some in and keep some out of the media area, but they also, you know, if you want a one on one with somebody, if you want a podcast with somebody, you go through them all the time. And so, uh, like starting over with new gatekeeper is not always, it's not always easy, but again, this is going to be my 13th season next year and it will be my ninth head coach. He's starting over is kind of like par for the course. And, uh, it's just, these guys are a different, a different type of conversation, a different type of relationship. Cause you're with them a ton and you're talking to them a ton about what's coming, what's not all that stuff. So, so changes are coming. Um, and it's a bummer. Good for, uh, for Son. He's getting a really good opportunity in Portland, um, uh, where he's a VP of, uh, basketball communications. Um, I, the Kings did try to retain him, but it was, you know, once you make a decision on these things, uh, it's time to go. And so, uh, I'm happy for him. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I guess for a peek behind the curtain, kind of like you were talking about, I mean, the whole media family thing and experiencing that it just is so true, you know, even aspects of maybe not all too many people go to shoot arounds, but like practices that were sitting and waiting 40 minutes to get waiting in there and waiting. And all you're doing is talking with the other media members and one of the media relations guys that are right there as well. Um, so there is so much of just, you naturally end up building relationships and friendships with these people. So it'll be interesting. A new transition. I've sat in that room for, I think <laughs> once or twice for like two and a half hours waiting for a practice to end. Maybe someone messed up and told us the wrong practice time. Maybe something else happened where they had a league meeting or something. Um, but yeah, there's uh you do spend a ton of time with these people. And uh, even this, I'll, I'll tell people during the, um, during the, the shutdown, well, not the shutdown during the time where, it literally was us and cardboard cutouts in the building. Uh, Brandon didn't get to experience this, but it was crazy. It was us, uh, like maybe 15 media members. And then there's camera guys and audio guys and, and stuff like that, radio techs. And, but the group of us was extremely small and we're the only ones in the building watching. Like, and, and again, we have to remain stoic. So, like just think of being in the arena and they were pumping in music. They were acting like it was a regular game. It was really, really bizarre to be part of. Um, but even then, like we had this thing where 
we knew that uh, like the vaccine came out, right? But but initially the vaccine, of course, was for like 70, 75 and older and then 70 and then 65 and it kept moving, right? Well, what we realized is as media, we were um, we were considered um, essential workers, essential workers. Right. And so we actually ended up getting everyone inside vaccinated early. And that sounds kind of strange, but we literally were sharing like when appointments would come open at Mather Air Force Base, we would share with them. Uh, like in a group, like, hey, hey, appointments just came open. You need to jump on and people would run down and get them. Um, and I, it really did bond us. You know, there were quite a few guys that are, especially the the camera guys and the and the audio guys that are older, you know, they but they, they weren't yet, uh, they couldn't yet get their vaccine per the mandates on age. And they were stressed out. And Next thing you know, we're like, we're sharing information. They're going and getting their stuff. They're taking their wives. And, you know, we get pictures of them with their, their wives or, you know, them getting their, their vaccine cards. It, it became like a really cool bonding thing. And the reason why it was important was because we knew like at that stage in the pandemic that eventually they're going to let people in the building and we needed to be as safe as possible. So, uh, you know, and then to end that season, I think we got up to like, 1200 people one game or something like that and even that was crazy and people got loose and rowdy because they hadn't been outside forever um but again like the media does become like a very very close-knit family and we're there to like help each other out and protect each other just like we've talked about this before on the pod but like we had this moment where uh we started losing some of the the ushers and the security for that were around the kings to covid or to other illnesses um, and like the pandemic was really, really hard on our group of people, uh, like within the walls, because, um, you know, like we had a guy, uh, everyone called him JJ. I called him Jerry cause his name was Jerry, uh, who basically was a gatekeeper of the locker room. Uh, he's the security guy that would stand outside the locker room and he's this incredible, incredible gentleman, um, who had like the craziest watches of all time and bling everywhere, spectacular human. And he passed away uh, during during the pandemic. And like, so like we are part of like this weird little sub family that you guys wouldn't even expect. But yeah, it's, you know, I guess everybody works and everybody has work friends and work family and um, our work family is just very different. So very much so. And it's uh, different personalities. I think a handful of people that I don't know I ever would have connected with if it wasn't for basketball and covering the same team so and yeah I'm happy that that's the case so it's it's a world weird world that we live in um okay so let's get to today's topic now that we're 29 minutes into the podcast um and we're gonna uh we're gonna crank up draft coverage so i intend to release um i think it's gonna be tomorrow um on friday i'm gonna release mock 0.5 um and 0.5 that's because I'm not releasing all f- all 30. I'm just doing the top 15 to start um, because I, I want to get it going. But again, mock drafts take forever. They really, especially the first couple of versions of mock drafts because you're doing so much film study, so much uh, research into players and everything else. Um, but uh, we're going to start here with this. Um, Brendan has been doing drafts for a while, mock drafts for a while. I've been doing mock drafts for a long time. And... You know, again, we want to take you behind the curtain on 
on how we do a mock so you have a better understanding of what goes into our process uh, when we do put these things out. Because what I typically never do, well, I never do at all, is just look at somebody else's mock draft and, and give you a slightly changed version of that mock draft, you know, like, because that would be, uh, I don't know, intellectually dishonest. It would be like a little bit of intellectual theft. Uh, there are consensus top guys. There are guys that everyone, we look around and you're, you know, you understand that, you know, there is a clear top three in this draft of Chet Holmgren and Paolo Bancaro and Jabari Smith Jr. Uh, but uh, Brendan, what goes into your draft process? How do you, how do you start? How do you value players? How do you, when you're looking at the teams that are drafting, do you look at the teams where they're drafting, or do you do it without teams? Like, how do you how do you manage your draft, your mock draft? Yeah, it's uh, you know, been a probably a little bit of a different process each time. I'm only probably three years in at this point. The Tyrese draft was the first one for me, and that was just because it was such a long off season. So, it's like I did I 22 it. mock drafts that yeah. year. 22. So I was just like, I guess it's time to get into the draft, and. I definitely start at the top, obviously, and kind of work my way down from there. And I think that first year probably ended up getting 40 or so deep. Um, but, you know, those last 10, like, it's it's hard because there's certainly guys that maybe I didn't research that if I did, I would have in that sort of range. And it's just hard to check off absolutely everybody when you're also keeping up with the NBA and any sort of updates with the Kings or anything like that. So, but when it comes to building a big board, um, I, I know a lot of people do like a Kings focused board, for example, but to me, I don't, I, because to me, the way that I like my draft philosophy, when it comes to best player available versus uh, fit, which I know we'll get into deeper at some point later in this episode is that if they're in the same tier, then I have no issues going for fit over maybe who I have sixth compared to seventh, but they're in the same tier. And I think that that's important to consider just in a vacuum, not when it comes to what do the Kings already have on their roster. So I build out my board, not considering the Kings point of view, because you never know what is going to change. You know, like, yeah, I don't think that we would have expected that, Tyrese Halliburton be gone and the idea of a secondary playmaker is maybe something like that's slightly intriguing like things just change so fast so for me it I mean obviously a, a lot of film watching I initially start with maybe getting my basic idea from doing a lot of research on or reading the work of Sam Bassini or um, Mike Schmitz and those guys are to me the top two yeah, they are the number one and number two. Yeah, and, you know, it just depends on what you're looking for, but they yeah. are the top two. Yeah, totally. Phenomenal work, and, and I'll kind of get my basic idea from there and look at stat lines and then dive into full games. Really, I think, you know, i uh, not a not a sponsor, but I am a YouTube TV guy and unlimited DVR, so I just have every college team set to record pretty much from years prior, and go back through a handful of games. And I think doing the Kings Bulls pods of profiles is kind of my way of tackling two guys at a time. And eventually you're up to 30, 40. Yeah. You start building things out. Um, so 
like again, I, I've I don't know how many years it's been since I've done mock drafts, but it's been a long time. Um, I I enjoy the process. I enjoy the process of watching, um, going back and watching players. Um, I also, you know, I I have a tendency to start late in the season as opposed to watching every game the player plays in from the beginning of college up until the end. I like to go back once it's kind of done. And so that way I get to see some progress. Uh, I do a lot of research as far as like, you know, everything I can learn about players. I go in and I dig in. Um, that's a, so when we talk about Mike Schmitz and we talk about Sam, uh, Vecini or Vecini, uh, from the athletic. Um, and of course, uh, Mike Schmitz is from ESPN. Um, they handle the draft totally different. So one of them writes extreme player profiles. Like he digs deep into who their parents are and where they're from and how their college, um, their high school experience went. And like when uh, Sam releases his his final end of the year um, draft Bible, it's absolutely incredible. It's incredible work. And um, so it's the longest thing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, most of my mock drafts are around, like, this number sticks out. They're, like, between 4,600 and 5,000 words. So they take days. So even if I'm just changing a mock draft and and revamping and sort of moving players around, that, for me, usually takes six to eight hours, like, just to do that work alone because it is comprehensive. Because my approach is... I do look at best player. I do look at fit. Um, but I also look at like team needs very, very distinctly. Like if you're looking at the top end of this year's draft and you're looking at three different teams that are sitting up there and what do we got as of right now, we got Houston, uh, Orlando and, and Detroit are your top three. Like you're going to, in a normal draft, you would be looking at like a variety of different positions and how they fit. It just happens that I think all three of those teams can use any one of the three players that are there because they all play the same position, basically. I mean, you could say Chet's at center, but um, I think he's more of a power forward slash, I mean, he weighs like 175 pounds. I mean, let's be honest. He's probably a four uh, up until, you know, maybe he's 48 and gains like 10 pounds. Um, Like, so when I'm looking at, like, I start breaking down what our team needs. If there were two people on the same tier, um, how would they choose those players, in my opinion? Are there players that they love on their roster already and they're not going to bring in another point guard to play with the secondary, with the the point guard they already have, stuff like that. Um, so I really do like to look at the teams first, write their needs, and then I look at where I would place players and then I talk about how I think that they would fit with those teams. And uh, I guess this is, this is an interesting question. When you talk about tiers, Brendan, are you a like? How do you tier a draft? Do you do you have a first uh, a one a one a a two a three a five a seven? You know, break it down like that. Um, how do they hold up historically? Do you do historical tiers? Because that's one thing where I I was watching Sam uh, Vesney on on a Pod the other day, and he says he believes there's no tier one player in this draft, and I, I understand yeah. that. There's some outliers, some some people that are different, but he doesn't think that there's a tier one. So how do you do your tiers and how do you look at them 
are they just tier tiers for this year? Are they tiers historically? Like, how do you break that down? Yeah, I think it's it's the former. It's for this specific season and, and contextualized. I, I do really like the. It's probably just because I've never played with the idea of, you know, what is a tier one prospect just across the board because. I think if I looked at it that way, I would agree with this draft. Like the top end talent, I think there's only one guy to me that I can even make a strong argument or make a decent argument for the potential of being the number one like primary initiator of an offense, which I think is probably the most valuable aspect of an NBA player. And there's only one guy in this draft that I think even like I can see it for. And that's Paulo to me. Um, but not to take anything away from some of the other guys, I, I just think that yeah, I don't know that I view them as, again, primary initiators on the offensive end, which I think is one of the most important and valuable things. So I may eventually get to historical tiers, but as of the current moment, it's definitely contextualized based on what the current draft is, where you know I'll have Chet, Jabari, and Paulo all in one tier, and then after that, it gets to... A substantial tier of maybe four or five guys and we'll see how big tier three looks after that but for me it's year to year where are you at with that yeah i mean i do look at them i think that that might be like where some people argue with my like my keegan murray take where i i look at him as where i would look at him historically right I, i'm not looking at him as a draft class as much as i look at the skill set that he has And it's the same thing when, like, we talk about, you know, we'll talk about all kinds of players, but, like, when I talk about uh, Akai uh, uh, Abaji, right, and I watch him play, and I studied him when I was at the Final Four. I'm watching his body movement. I'm watching where he's at on the floor the entire game. I'm I'm literally have, like, a bird's-eye view just watching his motion and how he moves without the ball, what he's doing on the ball, how many guys he can defend. Um, and I, I start to come to a conclusion about what I think about that player and just the way he moves. And I also do a lot of like player comps. I, I look at players and I historically, who does he look like? How does, how will he fit in the league? Right? So when I look at a player like him and I see certain things that I love and th- certain things that I don't like at all, then I have like the ability to watch another player an AJ Griffin and I'm watching AJ Griffin move without the ball I'm watching him go from one side to the next and and you know I watch one guy who goes like hits his first six three-pointers and is a superstar in the game and I came away thinking "Mm, he's a like in a standard draft between 12 and and 20 like at at a maximum and then I watch another player who has an absolutely dreadful dreadful game like is so bad in the Duke uh, Duke North Carolina game and AJ Griffin and I came away liking AJ Griffin more than I did uh, Abaji and that's because I'm looking at them and how they will fit in the NBA and how they will do things in the NBA and where potential is and where potential isn't and so I, that's how I I look at each player I I have ideas about where I think they can be as players who they should be. So when I, again, when I say that I would be really comfortable taking Keegan Murray at like number 12, it's not that I think that he's the 12th worst player in this draft. It's that I think that when I look at potential and fit and 
like ceiling and floor that I, I compare him to people that I've seen in the past. And I try to put him in context of what, where I think he'll be in the league. And that's why I think he's a player that, again, if he goes number six, that's fine. If he goes number 12, that's fine. But if I'm a team, if I were the one drafting and I'm looking at him as a player, I, I see starter potential. I see rotational for sure. I don't see plus starter. I, I see, I, I try to look at him in the view of how I see him compared to other players in the NBA and where I think he'll fit and how I think he'll succeed in the NBA very specifically, not where he compares to the people in his draft class. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally. Um, and, you know, I think that that's why mocks are very useful, right? Is when you actually like sit down and go through, okay, if I have to do this exercise, like where does it feel like this guy could actually get taken and just contextualizing based on that draft. Um, and every single one of them is going to be different. Like I think some of my tiers end up with, okay, these are the upside swings and these are the safer picks. And they're drastically different players and archetypes or levels of risk. But I put them in the same tier. It's just about what is that team sort of looking for or willing to, um, what sort of risks are they willing to take? Like Memphis, for example. Their Zaire Williams there is a player that is a raw prospect that was going to take time to develop. And I think it's surprising that he's been able to contribute in the way that he has. And it's not a major role or anything like that. But personally, I thought he was going to be a G League guy in year one. And I think he's overperformed that. But it's just whatever the philosophy is for each specific front office. Because I think it would have been easy to look at Memphis as a team that it's like, no, we're trying to turn the corner right now. We already are in the process of doing that. We need a player that's going to contribute to that as soon as possible. But instead, they're willing to be more patient, and maybe that ends up paying off in the long term. Maybe it doesn't. Um, but it all kind of depends on, again, what each front office is willing to do. Yeah, I really do think it's interesting when you're, you're looking at roster building. And, I mean, that's part of the problem when we talk about turnover, right? And, and different identities and different ideas. We're always talking about turnover in Sacramento because there's always turnover. Well, it's really hard to be a general manager stepping in where your roster salary cap space is almost already eaten. Like, again, we've talked about this. Monty McNair's first thing, he he knew he had Buddy Hield at $24 million. He knew he had uh, Harrison Barnes at $22 million, And he knew that he had to pay, um, you know, he had to pay De'Aaron Fox a five-year $163 million deal. That was like his first act was to pay him. You know how much how little cap space you have to make any major moves. And that's part of the reason why I'm going to assume he passed on locking up more salary with Bogdan Bogdanovich. That's where the problem is when you don't have continuity within a franchise. Again, if the Kings pick up the, if they match the offer sheet to Bogdan, chances are they make the playoffs that year. They missed the playoffs by two, two games. Chances are they make the playoffs last year. And, you know, where would they be this year? So we can start to look at these things. But again, they're still they talking about needing a starting two guard. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I I don't think I'm totally crazy to say that Bogdan Bogdanovich would is a better, like as of right now, is a better player than any of the options that the Kings have at the shooting guard spot. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, they had Buddy. They would have had to work out a way to get rid of Buddy and like like to balance their stuff. But that's part of the problem of continuity is that when you break it, it's it's really hard to develop something. So if I look at what what you talk about with Zaire uh, Williams, who who's always been he's been a known player forever. I mean, he's like a Team USA guy. He's he's a human highlight reel yeah, like Sierra high school Canyon with Brawny and yeah, yeah. Everyone knew who he was, right? So. But I didn't look at him that way. When I looked at Memphis, I thought, okay, Memphis is already 10 deep, maybe maybe 11 deep, 12 deep. Like, they can take a, a flyer on a guy and bring him along slow. They don't have to go reach for a guy like Davion because they're in a situation where they can bring someone along the right way where the Kings weren't. The Kings are in a situation where they just are so they, – they continuously are bad and they're trying to find players that make sense to try to help them improve today because they don't have the other avenues to help improve themselves like they're not huge players in the free agency market. And on top of that, they really didn't have a bunch of trade chips to go out and improve their roster. Um, I mean, we could talk about roster construction all day. Like Realistically, the Kings would have been better off if they would have drafted uh, a different player and kept DeLon Wright and... You know, like, I, it's not that I don't think that Davion's going to be a good player. I think he is a good player. But, like, if you were worried about year one, DeLon Wright would have helped you more this year than Davion Mitchell did. He would have helped you a lot more this year. And so we see sort of this trickle-down thing where the Kings are always, they're sort of chasing their tail, right? They're always trying to, they're like a dog chasing a tail, like, they're always caught in some weird cycle of how do we improve now as opposed to how do we look at a long-term thing. And it's because they never have enough talent on the roster. If they had enough talent, like Memphis had enough talent, then they could have made a decision that made, maybe made more sense. They could have invested more time in a guy like Moses Moody. Yeah. Or yeah. I mean, Golden State's another great example, right? Like look at Jordan Poole, who's what? 27th, 28th pick in the draft. He was a, pretty late pick and because they're able to be patient and he's coming up in a system where he's able to look at Steph Curry and follow that mold or they're able to look at a Jonathan Kuminga because they already have pieces in place and slowly bring them along like I get why Sacramento maybe doesn't have that luxury but I think that continuously trying to fast track the process is part of the issue yeah um, so I think that being too short-sighted like the way that I kind of am looking at any sort of upside swings, you, you can say in the draft, high-risk upside prospects in the draft, to me, in this year with the Kings' current roster construction, is that, say it's a four. Let's let's say Chet Holmgren, or maybe that's uh, that's too... Let's say Tari Eason, because Chet Holmgren is too top prospect. But yeah. Tari Eason, a very raw prospect who has a lot of upside if things click, but it's risky. To me, um, not necessarily advocating that I love that pick or anything, but to me, I, I think that what it has to be year one is really just an improvement on Chemezi Metu, Trey Lyles, or um, Maurice Harkless. Like, you don't need to take a massive jump in the first year of that player being there. I don't think that it's important for a prospect to come in and instantly change your trajectory for that season i think that your starting point that you're working with it's not hard to improve on from there 
And then if you see the flashes of potential that you're in an even better position the next season, because being too short-sighted and just making sure like, no, we need somebody that's going to help us this year, then like you're just going to end up doing the same thing over and over and over again, because more likely than not, these safer picks don't eventually develop into higher level prospects. And then you're left just needing more when maybe if two, three years ago, you would have taken the guy that was high upside, you'd be in a position now where you have a player that is enough and you're looking for more complimentary guys. Like, I don't know. To me, uh, I very much think that, again, fast tracking, trying to fast track that we need talent right now, we can't be patient, is not the best way to approach the draft in my mind, especially when you're talking top 10. Yeah, so I'm going to go back to the Golden State Warriors um, because, first of all, the Golden State Warriors, you know, had two really down years. So they were able to load up. They also had the Minnesota trade, which came back to really help them, um, where they got uh, Wiggins for D'Angelo Russell. That really did help them. Um, Kuminga. <laughs> yeah, well, they they got picks in that. Yeah, for sure. So, um, but the thing that I'll point out is they, they draft Kaminga and they draft Moody, just like the year before they drafted Wiseman. Um, but they went for highest potential. They went for, uh, like, best player available, but clearly well-valued overfit. And then what they did, which is kind of the quiet thing that they did, is they went out and they signed Andre Iguodala. They signed Otto Porter. They signed Nemanja Bialica. They signed the players that will be placeholders while those guys get ready to become players down the road. And it could be next year. It could be the year after. But what they've done is they've really helped themselves like transition from a very old roster, and they are going to be an old roster for a couple more years, but then this whole flood of young players coming up behind them where you can see this thing real I mean, did they make mistakes? Yes, they made mistakes. I mean, drafting Weissman over Lamelo Ball will probably end up being like a catastrophic mistake for them. Um, but at the same time, even like and they loved Halliburton. Like if they would have drafted Halliburton, just think where they would be. All of a sudden now you have your point guard of the future, you have your your two, your three and four of the future, and Moody and Kaminga. Uh like it would have set them up differently. But still it's because they have a system in place and they have players in place that they can outline, they can sketch out where they should be. I think we've talked about this, like not next season, but the season after the 2023, 24 season. Is that what it is? Um, the Kings only have uh, De'Aaron Fox, DeMontis Sabonis and Davion Mitchell under contract. And, and so my point is like, how are you supposed to game plan when I guess the one other guy they they have on a contract is Rashawn Holmes, but I don't think anyone expects him to be here next season. So like, how do you game plan out when that's what you're looking at? You don't have any young players. That's where like Memphis has all these young players that they're developing and they're bringing up along with jaw and with, you know, uh, Jaron Jackson. Like these are young players that are supporting young players, but then they also have vets that actually are impactful Right. And so like there's this dynamic that the team build in Sacramento could be way far away because they don't have like this whole entire like system. They they you know, the only thing they have is like coming into this year, they had 
two second-round picks from last year and Jemias Ramsey and Robert Woodard, and they just dumped them. They uh, they cut both of them to right to make the uh, to make the trades that they did at the deadline. So they're not even developing any other young players other than a 23, almost 24-year-old Davion Mitchell and a 24-year-old um, De'Aaron Fox. Like that's it. So that that's a problem. So not all like the Kings' roster build is is really in a weird weird place. It is. Um, I use Tari Eason as an example. Um, yeah, but I think that actually the better example is probably Shady and Sharp that totally just flew over my head. Like yeah, total risk, total risk. And to me, it's less of like the the Kings have to take upside swings, but more so. I think that it's wrong to not be okay with doing that. Like, if they view, again, it's the same tier and say that you like Keegan Murray better than Shady and Sharp, I'm not, like, stuck on an opinion between those two at the current point. I'm sure I will be in the future. But, like, it doesn't – I'm not saying, like, you can never take the safe pick. But I don't think it's very – I don't think the Kings are in a position talent-wise where they can look at an upside pick and say, no, we just don't have time to be patient. Like, yeah, you have to. You have to sometimes. That's a good segue. We're going to we're gonna play a, uh, a clip of Monty McNair on um, his thoughts on, on uh, fit versus best player available that we had um, at the end of the season. Yeah, I think for us, the, the draft is um, one of the few times that you can add, you know, usually a, a younger player right often guys when they reach free agency um you know they're they're multiple years into their career um and so you know somebody like davion um already an impactful winning player and then uh the work ethic the character all that to continue to grow so uh yeah i I don't know if it's you know we want a guy who's going to impact from day one and and hopefully for years and years to come um so you know it's hard to give maybe a very specific answer there but yeah, we want the player that's going to come in and, um, you know, and help us, uh, you know, not just for one year or not just five years from now. So uh, best player for us is is the guy that's going to do that, regardless of position and, and different things like that. Yeah, James, I want to ask you here. To me, it sounds like at one point you hear Monty say, and I guess t- context here, I, I asked, like, how do you define best player available? to Monty McNair and and that was his response like you know does it what impact does immediate contribution compared to what their future potential is when it comes to best player available Um, because they mentioned that Davion Mitchell was best player available last year and that's the way they looked at it that's why he talked about Davion a little bit there but to me it felt like and tell me if you think I'm reading this the wrong way that Monty kind of gave a little bit of like a they need a player that's going to contribute right away and then backtracked a little bit and tried to like, Oh, well, you know, but obviously the future is important as well. Yeah. I mean, I I still think that they're in the same mindset that they were last year. And I don't think that that's a great mindset because then you end up passing on like really high end talent and in order you're exchanging the could be for the, what is, you know, I think when they looked at Davion Mitchell, and maybe we can tie this to Tyrese Halliburton. When I was mocking, you know, doing 22 mock drafts during the, the pandemic, my thought process was always, I watched so much film with Tyrese Halliburton. I absolutely loved him. 
I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. The question was, will it translate, right? So when you when you're risking uh, at number twelve, that's nothing. Like number twelve is like that was so low for Halliburton. Halliburton should have been fell top. In their lap. Yeah, he should have been top five, right? Yeah. So, um, but when you looked at him, you're like, okay, at number twelve, he became a no brainer, no risk, uh, like no risk at all, high, high, high reward. And that's not just what I say after the fact; it's like during the process. If it translates, he just kept saying it. If it translates, he is going to be a stud at the next level. He does everything. He steals the ball. He passes. He was an exceptional rebounder at at the college level. And that might be one of those things where I point out. He was an exceptional rebounder at the college level. He was a subpar rebounder with the Kings. Um, he was a really solid defender. He was a subpar defender with the Kings. It didn't translate. What did translate was his incredible basketball IQ, his shot, which no one thought would translate, um, his ability to get to three levels. Uh, again, you didn't think it would translate. His ability to get to the free throw line didn't translate. He he can't get to the free throw line at the pro level. I mean, he was like less than one free throw a game. So like that's where I'm looking at a player, and I think that when you hit it with a guy like Ty— and again, we're going to look past all the negatives of who Ty is as a player. We're just going to focus on the positives and say, like, like he's exceptional at running a team, at distribu- uh, distributing, at shooting the three ball, at, you know, like he's a very, very good player. I think they walked into the next offseason and they thought, okay, we think that Davion's, everything he does will translate as well. And if... Davion, it doesn't matter what his age is. If he's 23 and you think it all will translate, then he should be, He he's worth a number nine pick because he was that good in college. If you think you're getting a lockdown defender, a 40 plus, 42, 43% three-point shooter, a guy who doesn't have to run an offense, but who can pull up and hit a jumper and has some skills that you like, but really it's about defense and about those things, then he is the right pick. It's just that we're always caught up in this projecting this, uh, you know, the ceiling floor discussion. The floor for Davion Mitchell is exactly where it is right now. This is a floor. The ceiling isn't De'Aaron Fox, and it's not that five-game stretch where he's averaging 25 and, and 10. His his ceiling is more like, you know, in a perfect world, 17 and six or 17 and five and a lockdown defender. So you're, you're crushing your, your sort of uh ceiling floor discussion to a very small piece, but you know, he's going to be solid. You know, he's going to be a rotational NBA player. We know that because he spent four years in college and we saw who he was and we, he developed who he was. Uh, and that's where you start to get into this question of like, can will the Kings make that judgment again? Will they continue to have that judgment where they're willing to give up the potential for what they know? Are they willing to look at a lower ceiling but a higher floor? And I think that that's it's like a really interesting discussion when it comes to how we've seen Monty draft so far. But I also think that we've already seen it play out where those players that are like. Halliburton, who is a sophomore coming in, but an older sophomore, um, and guys like Davion, who is a senior, 
they are actually worth a little bit more in trade because you don't have this this whole new car thing nearly as much. We don't have this thing where a player could be up here, but then in his rookie season, his value plummets to here because he doesn't do very much, and then you can't turn around and trade him because yeah because now his potential to ceiling his ceiling to floor is starting to be like it's changing yeah all of a sudden you see a much lower ceiling and i mean a much lower floor and while you still think he might have the ceiling the floor becomes like oh okay he averaged four points a game in his rookie season that's not very so so again if you're looking at players as potential trade chips which I think that the Kings do. I think they do look. They did look at Halliburton as a potential trade tr- chip when they drafted him, and they, I think they look at Davion Mitchell the same way. If Davion Mitchell works out, they know they have Fox. He might be a guy that they use to go get a different position. And so I, I really, it's it's interesting to watch because every single one of these teams have different ideas on ceiling and floor and best player available versus fit and all that stuff, but. Um, I think the Kings specifically are in a very different position where you have to look at where their value is, like where their value is in year one, year two, year three. And sure, you could hit a rich with somebody, but at number nine, number 12, the chances of you like striking gold is very minimal. You're more likely finding a solid rotational player, and they know that those guys are going to be solid rotational players that they possibly could move to get something that fits them better down the road. Yeah. I mean, I think that both Tyrese Halliburton and Davion Mitchells are picks I look at as safe picks. I I think that both of those players were, like you said, low floor, or I'm sorry, high floor, low ceiling. And I think Tyrese Tyrese Halliburton's self-creation and ability to shoot off of his own created space is something that just was completely unexpected when it came to profiling him at the time of the draft and the way that he was able to become a guy that I think has a high ceiling, but that's not what he was at the time of the draft. There was no sort of like, at least from what I saw, there was a lot of questions about what does his self-creation look like? I think that he's a great connecting piece, but is there a ceiling there? And it's the same thing with Davion, um, where you can talk yourself into a ceiling, but more likely than not, in my mind, I'm viewing those prospects as safer picks. And I think it's an aspect of the Kings trying to raise their overall roster's floor. And I think that maybe it should be a little bit more focused on raising the ceiling of the roster. And not that those guys can't help eventually make that ceiling greater if if they do develop in ways that's unexpected of Davion does become a starting caliber one or two guard combo guard that is you know the ceiling you talked about of 17 and six or whatever like sure they can be contributors to an overall higher ceiling but it feels like with those two picks it's more of a we can't get this wrong and we need to raise the floor of what the current roster is that's a really good point. And I'll also say this, that when you're drafting more mature players, and I think we, we can look at both of them as pretty mature players, whether it's age or just like, you know, when you talk to them, you understand that they're both very mature players, right? Um, yeah, I think you're also looking at uh, basketball IQ. You, you're, they were, the Kings were specifically looking for 
higher basketball IQ players. And a lot of times I think that like that there's a confusing thing about like higher, lower, you know, basketball IQ players. I, I think there are like 28 year old players in the NBA who have low basketball IQ. There are a ton of them, right? I also think that there are 18 year olds coming into the league that have tremendous basketball IQ, but there are also a bunch of young players that develop their basketball IQ in their first like two, three years in the, in the, in the pros guys who spend time film studying around spending a lot of time with veterans, spending a lot of time, uh, sitting down with assistant coaches and development coaches that try to increase their basketball IQ. And, uh, you, you have to search for players that have that mentality that they're going to search for basketball, that they're, that they're basketball lifers and that they, they have a thirst for knowledge when it comes to the game and they want to get better and they want to learn the game better. That's why I think Halliburton is like off the charts. Like if like, what is it? The lead better test that they do for NFL quarterbacks um, where you can start to see where a player is like, they may not have the ability to learn right uh so we got guys who score like a like a 36 or 32 or whatever and they're like everyone's like oh my gosh they're so incredibly smart whether they have skill or not you know is a whole nother question then you have other guys who score like a, an eight or a nine on on the test and you're like do they have the capability to process information at at the highest level and some guys come into the league with like a low a low score but they spend the time and they work hard and they they figure out how to like process the information correctly and they come out on top and other guys who don't, who have these big numbers, but they come into the league and they don't have the skill set, They don't have the big arm or they don't have quick enough feet or they, you know, just everything actually on the field. They look great in a college uniform, but they look horrible in a pro uniform. And, you know, there's so many other things that go into it. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where the Kings are looking for, we're looking specifically for high basketball IQ players, and they found two of them. They absolutely did. Um, it's interesting. I, I don't know that I had pieced together. Like they are both very mature, smart people in general, like culture setters. You know, I think that's something that was floated around a lot with Davion Mitchell, and definitely saw with Tyrese Halliburton. He's just very vocal, but. Davion specifically, it's just like an extreme hard worker. Like you hear everyone's work ethic praised, but nobody liked Davion. I think Alvin had a quote, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, of everybody says that they're the hardest worker ever, but Davion's actually the hardest worker that I've ever been with. And I mean, Fox compared him to Kobe. Yeah. He said the only one that's like him is Kobe. Yeah. I mean, um, that's that's high praise for one of your teammates to say that. That's That's crazy. It's ridiculous, um, and you hear it from absolutely everywhere. Yeah, coming into the draft, after, there. I think it's popular to hear that for a lot of guys throughout the draft process, but for it to be continued on, even when he does make a team, and, and we're still he hearing it throughout the entire season, I think says a lot. Um, how much value do you put in in that, though? I, I understand it's important, but do you think there's an aspect of overvaluing that? Like, I think the mellow ball is a great example here right where probably not a great interview um, the not the second worst interview maybe the worst interview i've ever seen yeah i've uh, definitely heard that yeah i mean watch mike schmitz's one-on-one -on -one film study with Lamelo ball and you can see it 
you get an example of just how LaMelo talks and presents himself. But, and, and you know, like, oh, what are you seeing on this play? Well, I just, I just feel it, you know? And it's like, okay. Um, but, but then you watch him, and he and plays by feel. He feels it, yes. Um, so, yeah. I don't know, like, as, because this will be the first year for me, for my understanding, where I'm actually get to be a part of these interviews. You know, what, how do you balance maybe, is there ever an aspect where you find yourself putting too much or not enough stock into who they are as a person compared to who they are on the floor? Yeah, there's always that problem because you have some guys who, I mean, you know, that haven't had the opportunities to, to like, how do you say this? They haven't had the opportunities to be in a, a good place in life, like where they haven't had the advantages to go to school full time, to, you know, work on educating themselves. They haven't had the opportunities to, you know, like I'll use Ben McLemore for an example, right? Ben McLemore and his brother would walk around their neighborhood uh, asking people if they could mow their lawn so they could like earn enough money to go get top ramen at the corner market. So that means that people are giving them like a quarter. And we're not talking about 1957 or something. We're talking about in the 2000s, in the 2010s, you know, those kids were walking around their street trying to earn enough money to go buy Top Ramen so they could eat. And so you get these, you know, some of these players, like, they they come across as, like, you know, if you want to, like, interview somebody and just totally bash on how they come across, like, you can do that, but you also have to, like, put things in perspective where I think, you know, you brought up Ball. Like, he's had advantages. That's That's not... That's not a kid who's ever wanted for anything. I mean, his his family has their own shoe line. He's never wanted for anything, but he didn't take the process seriously at all. And that that's like for me, that's where I get it. Where you have other guys who come in, and there's some guys that come in and they're rough, and you're like, okay, I don't know how this works out, you know. And then there are other guys that come in, and you're just like, man, that was one of the best interviews I've ever seen. And then. But you talk to the you know people who were there and watched workout. They're like, well, yeah, but he wasn't very good. Like he's not a ball player. So like there is like a huge balancing act that you got to go through when you go through this process of trying not to be too hard and realizing that some of these kids are college kids that have never really had this opportunity to be interviewed. They've never gone like they might play at a smaller school where like maybe like I, I don't know when was the last time someone read something in the Sacramento Bee. Uh, about the about Sac State basketball or about UC Davis basketball where they're literally interviewing a player after a game. Like, that doesn't happen. And there's only two colleges here in Sacramento and there's only one professional sports franchise. I mean, you can't get an article on the Rivercats who are a AAA baseball team. You can't get a breakdown in the Sacramento Bee on one of their players. You're certainly not going to get, you know, someone from Sac State or, or UC Davis basketball to, to get like a full-fledged interview. So my point is like some of these guys, they've never been around media They They go to schools where, you know, maybe it's a guy like, uh, like AJ Griffin, right? He, he goes to Duke 
well, this entire season has been about Paolo. This entire season has been about Coach K. Uh, it has not been, let's go sit down with AJ Griffin and get, you know, massive interviews with him. Let's not go sit down with Mark Williams. I, you know, we'll eventually see an an interview or two with Mark Williams out there, but that guy has not had the opportunity to go show like that side of himself, like at all. So I, I think that like, again, covering the draft for so many years and covering it the way where we get to in Sacramento, where you're always in the lottery. So you always get a bunch of prospects. The Kings always have a second round pick. Uh, you know, again, the Kyle Guy draft, they brought in 101 prospects that year, Ooh, 101, and they bring them in sets of six. So think of how many times I had to go to the arena. Uh, that's a lot. That's a that's a lot of like 16, 17, 18 times you're going to the arena to go, uh, you know, hang out with a bunch of guys who may never play in the NBA. And then every once in a while you go and you're like, holy cow, there's Taco Fall. Like... <laughs> Like, yeah. oh my gosh, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Taco, Taco is one of the biggest men I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, okay, Brendan, let's, let's do this. Um, this draft is very, very interesting. Um, and I say that because like the top three guys are all freshmen. And then there's some freshmen mixed in, but it's almost like the next 10 to 12 guys there might be like two freshmen. There's one G League Ignite guy, but the rest of them are, there's a lot of sophomores, which is unusual. And I think it's part of the pandemic, but you know, guys like uh, Jaden Ivey, guys like, um, uh, Matherin, John yeah, Davis, Johnny Davis. Yeah. Keegan, mm-hmm. um, you know, who's, who's a slightly older prospect. So if you're the Kings, um, and you're looking at this draft, I guess we'll start here. What what are your and your idea? What are the biggest needs for the Kings coming into the draft? If they were to draft at seven, what are your biggest needs? And I'm not talking about players. I'm talking about like what positions are you looking at that fit with this year's draft? Yeah, I'm going to steal De'Aaron Fox's wording: uh, length and shooting. That's what I'm all about here for the Kings. I, I think that wings would be the most ideal. They don't have very many wings on Sacramento's roster. And you're talking 3-4, like stretch 3, stretch 4. Okay. I I kind of think that 3-4 are the same thing in the modern NBA. I don't know that I view all too much of a difference. I think slightly, but I don't know. I I, I get a little lost when I hear somebody say, like, Harrison Barnes is a popular one for this. Like, oh, he can play the 3, but he can't play the 4, or vice versa. And I don't know. To me, like, they're kind of the same thing. But, yes, like, that's, that's the role that I'm talking about is... A wing. I think like the most ideal um, archetype would be a large wing that can protect the rim on the weak side and be a good defender when it comes to defending the perimeter and also a high level spot up three point shooter. I don't know okay. that like there's obviously any sort of creation ability is a plus, but to me, a three and D. 6'8 player is kind of one of the primary things that the Kings need. Okay, so the problem that you have is in this specific draft, there are a ton of fours, right, um, that we're talking about. Like, you know, you've got at the top end, you've got Chet, you've got Jabari, you've got Paolo. 
Um, and then, you know, you can throw Keegan Murray into that, like, stretch four. Uh, you can try to throw Tari Eason. Mm-hmm. A- and so you have at least four options, five options, and say the top 15, right? So that makes sense to me. Uh, and each of those players have different, you know, reasons why you would draft them or wouldn't, you know, you'd have to get into each player individually. Then we have a whole group of like two slash threes. And again, I think that's a major need for the Kings. I think if I'm the Kings, I'm looking at the, the two slash three, like uh, preferably a three, but if I've got to go with a two, I've got to go with a two, um, or a stretch four. And if somehow you move up into the top three, it's a no-brainer. You know exactly what you're drafting. You're drafting whichever guy falls to you if you're at number three. If you're at number two, you're choosing between probably, well, you're choosing between one of the three bigs because they're still, I think it's up in the air where these guys are all going to go. Um, even the number one pick, I, I think Chet, we've got Chet penciled in. Both of us have Chet penciled in as our, our number one uh, and probably Jabari number two and Paolo number three. Um, but I, I definitely think that it's situational. Like if I'm... Detroit and I moved to number one I'm probably looking at Paolo pretty strong and you know like because I think he would be a perfect long-term pairing to go with uh you know the number one pick from last year's draft and so those are things where you know Kate Cunningham I like I could see those guys being like an exceptional fit together for a decade where they all of a sudden revitalize basketball in Detroit but you know it just depends on what team is where and so when they have Marvin Bagley, James, they don't need Paulo. They don't need Paulo. Yeah, exactly. That that very true. Good point. Good point, Brennan cool. Nunes. Yeah, good point. Um, okay, so then we have this other group, and you know, like Jaden Ivey is a two for sure. Uh, Shaden Sharp is either two or a three, uh, six six with a seven foot wingspan, um, who has not played a single college game. You got AJ Griffin. You got Johnny Davis. You've got Benedict Matherin. Um, like there is a bunch of players, uh, even if you slide down, uh, you know, Abaji and, and guys like that. So you have this dynamic where there might be players that fit perfect into this, um, this, you know, what do the Kings need? And so I think in this particular draft, we kind of throw away the, uh, the fit versus, um, versus best player available and it really does come down to who is the best player available. And most of them are, you know, like a good portion of the players that we're talking about are sophomores, uh, you know, especially if you're not moving into the top three. There are going to be sophomores that you're looking at and trying to gauge which sophomore is the best because, you know, a huge swath of them are. Uh, maybe Shaden Sharp is one guy that you look at and you go, okay, we just can't pass up. Like he's a, he came into the year, I think, as a number one prospect. Uh, at worst case scenario, he was a number three prospect coming into this year. And it's because he bumped up his year of eligibility. And uh, Sharp did just uh, announce today that he is um, going into the draft and he's staying in the draft. And he asked, he actually has to appeal to the NBA uh, to make sure that he's eligible because he, um, he definitely, like there's a gray area whether he graduated before October 19th in order to be eligible for this draft, he had to have graduated high school before the NBA season began, which is October 19th. 
And so whether or not he was actually able to get his graduation, there's some people who say he did in the summer. There's some people who say we can't even figure out where it is that he did graduate from high school. Then he goes to Kentucky. And again, he has to have one year from the date. Uh, like he can't play. He, he can't be drafted if uh, he hasn't if he was not graduated from high school by October 19th. So it's this weird, you know, rules of the NBA. Yeah. My understanding is that on the 25th, we will know for certain if he is or is not in the draft. Okay. All right. So of this group, like, um, you know, I, I, if you move up into the top three, everything changes, but if not, it really does become like a personal choice, right? Like you could value AJ Griffin really high. You can, value benedict matherin really high um i think you're you know again aj griffin's younger and needs some time to grow but um you know you can see the ceiling you can see where he can be and so i think in this particular draft we're going to cover a lot of these players like we're going to break them down to their finer finer nuances but it really it's going to come down to interview process it's going to come down to uh, like how they weigh in how you know they're literally their height and weight measurements uh, their wingspan, stuff like that, when they actually get to the combine and, you know, teams get a chance to see these guys. Uh, I, I think a lot of it is going to come down to, you know, again, like I've heard things like, well, a lot of people are concerned that Keegan Murray is going to measure in at like six, six and a half without shoes on. And then where does that put him? That puts him at a three, but a slow through three that people don't think can defend that position. And so can he be a four? And so I, I think that there's going to be a lot of, intriguing twists and turns here that we're going to go through over the next couple of months definitely and and all these two guards two threes like you were talking about is is interesting you know outside of the top four like i know i was just talking up the kings needing to take upside swings but it does really scare me like it's hard to it they put themselves in a position where they do have to be really good next year the Kings have to take a substantial step forward from where they just finished this season, but with the move that they made for Demontis Sabonis, like, I'm not saying it's a bad move; it can totally pay off. But you're in a position where you do have to win games next season, and I like AJ Griffin would be my pick among all those, which I think is probably the popular one. Um, maybe I don't have a take on Shady and Sharp right now. I just haven't done enough research. I have to pull myself to actually go watch some high school games, apparently. Man, he's but, long. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's long. It's... He's got big-time bounce. He got better as a, you know, creating his own shot and as he progressed as a uh, through his high school career. Uh, we talked about, like, the, the, the Peach Jam. Like he was a superstar at the Peach Jam. That's where he, he. I think as a sophomore, he was like a, like a three or four star recruit, and then all of a sudden he grew and like his wingspan kept expanding, and he became a five star recruit. Um, yeah, which are always weird things. Like I don't know how to. It's one of those things I don't know how to factor in. Where it's like Keegan Murray, all of a sudden is a great three point shooter, but the year prior. He wasn't, and it's just like, okay, does this speak to him having a really good work ethic, or is this something to be skeptical of? Or is and, it opportunity? Because I think part of that is opportunity. Yeah, it, yeah. it's tough. There's so many things to to try to gauge and figure out where you land on. Um, 
so I don't know. Like I, I like the idea of uh, AJ Griffin, Benedict Mathery, and I think those guys are what the Kings need in their actualized form. But it's gonna be rough early. Like if you think Dante Divincenzo was a rough watch sometimes. Uh, I can't say what AJ Griffin and Benedict Matherin are going to be when they're out there because there's going to be a whole lot of very frustrating moments early with a lot of those players guys that put the ball on the floor and have questionable decision making that are reliant on optimizing how they use their athleticism like you see it in the flashes but um, you know I I guess I'm playing the other side of I was very much preaching I, I don't mind upside swings I think that is smart to do but I don't know it's it's a situation where it's hard to do that yeah and and I think one of the points I'll I'll just kind of further that you just made that you made earlier um, you can see how there are quite a few of the stretch four guys who step in and automatically give you a better option right like their their floor is where the ceiling or where your players are right now um, and so you feel like you can do at, at specifically at the at the power forward position, at the shooting guard spot. Mm, I, I don't know that you can say that that you can feel that way that 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 two three. I don't know that you can say that. I, I think you can say that like whether you love Justin Holiday or hate Justin Holiday and you're frustrated by Justin Holiday, whatever it is, Justin Holiday is going to be better in year one than a lot of these guys. Than you know. Yeah, I mean, so. look at. Last year's Jalen Suggs, like James Booknight, uh, Josh Primo, like Trey Mann did well. He's on a team that he's getting a crazy amount of opportunity with OKC. But Jalen Green at the beginning of the year, he's the number two overall pick. He's horrible at the beginning of the year. Think of De'Aaron Fox, year one, first year of De'Aaron Fox. He'll tell you he was horrible. He'll tell you, like, Ty is so much better. That's what he kept saying. Ty is so much better than I was as a rookie. And their stats were almost identical, um, but... He's like, it's not even remotely close. Like, he's just a much better player. Because yeah, so. guys can put up numbers, but contributing to winning as a guard, I think early in a career, is is a very difficult thing to do, um, especially when you're the one orchestrating the offense and things like that. But, yeah, I mean, do you have any standouts of, like, where are you at with upside versus safe picks if the Kings stay at 7 or, or 8? Upside versus safe pick. Um, yeah. I mean that's that's gonna be the question, right? Like I, I think if we look at Johnny Davis is the is the huge riser in this year's draft. He's a player that shot he kinda did the reverse of what you said. He shot thirty eight percent from three as a freshman and thirty percent as a as a sophomore and people are like, What exactly happened? I think his role changed and like his responsibilities changed and he f- started to find his game late for Wisconsin, but he also led a a team like he backpacked a team. And so he's the guy, even though he's around the same age as all the rest of them, who kind of looks like that mature guy, who kind of looks like the guy that can step in and help you right away uh, versus a guy like, again, AJ Griffin, that looks like he's going to take two or three years to develop. Um, or a guy like Matherin, who I think is sort of in the middle between those two, but probably has a higher ceiling than either one of them. Uh, maybe not as a but then it becomes like, what are you really looking for, right? Because if I'm looking for a 3 and D guy, then I'm probably going to invest my time and money into A.J. Griffin because that's a guy that I think will develop into a 3 and D guy. If I think I'm going to convert uh, Benedict Matherin into a 3 and D guy, 
then I'm an idiot, and that's not going to work out. He can be a solid defender, but he's going to be a guy who, you know, has the potential to average 20 points a game as a scorer. Like, he is an exceptional scorer. And so, like, I'm weighing all of these things. Like, Johnny Davis, like, he's a very good defender at the, the college level, but most people don't think it translates. So, again, I see a lot of the Halliburton comparison when it comes to Johnny Davis, and I think that's why he's starting to climb up because people are like, well, there's a bunch of mystical, like, fantasy land thoughts on what some of these other players can be here. Johnny Davis, I know who he was going to be. He's going to be solid rotational NBA player for a long time who does play defense, who can defend multiple positions, even if he's, you know, he's going to need to work hard to do that at the NBA level. So, yeah. yeah. Mostly who you really know who they're going to be are the guys that are already in the league. You know, like there's a very, very good chance that they trade the pick. Okay, so I, I agree, but that brings us to the business of basketball. The business of basketball the business of basketball so we've been dragging these podcasts out longer and longer I, I like there's gonna come a time where it's like you're watching dances with wolves uh, you know like a three-hour like uh odyssey here that we're on um but uh you know i, I think it's I, i'm looking at the clock we're like a little over an hour and 30 um so the business of basketball i i did write down um keep it or trade it uh what is your break point um for for trading this pick and and here's the, the the thing I'm gonna slide in here. Your breakpoint on on April twenty first, I don't think is gonna be the same breakpoint as your breakpoint on like June first. Because of who becomes potentially available? No, because you're gonna fall in love with players over the next six For sure. weeks. For sure. You're and and you're gonna be like, <laughs> Oh no, I think I've talked myself into this. So as of right now, what is your breakpoint? Where would you trade the pick? Because I have like, I think I know exactly where I would trade the pick. I think I do too. Um, obviously, it's a very contextualized. Like, depends what you're getting in return. But to me, for me, just to bluntly answer it, like if Chet Holmgren and Jabari Smith are off the board, trade it. And yeah, that's that. That's pretty much where I'm at. Like. If they want to go for Apollo or I will talk myself and other guys and be fine. But to me, if I have to give a definitive answer to that, if Chet Holmgren and Jabari Smith Jr. are off the board, trade the pick. Okay. Where are you at? Um, yeah, I would take Paolo. Uh, like I, that, that's my cut point. My, if they're outside of the top three. Um, but like, there's always a possibility like I'll tell you, like I was, uh, I was listening to a pod with uh, Sam Vesney, and and he said, like, look, there's a possibility that like if the right team moves up in the draft, the right team, they fall in love with uh, with Shaden Sharp, and and they they take him number one overall. Like, so there's always a possibility that this thing stretches out to like the number four pick, where somebody like a Jaden Ivy, uh, like sort of unseat somebody and you start to get that vibe early and we start to see that you know the top three isn't the top three and that there might be somebody who moves into that top three there's always this thing it, it Scotty always Barnes did it last year I mean I think that it was like a consensus quote-unquote top four of Cunningham Green Mobley and then Suggs yeah and there was conversations of Barnes but I think most people were surprised that he jumped up 
there were a couple of surprises. I mean, because even Josh Giddy moved up to like number six, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he ended up going six. Yeah, yeah. And, and Giddy, like people thought I was crazy for putting Giddy at number nine. Giddy was my like, I, I didn't think there was any way Scotty Barnes would make it to the Kings, and I was excited about Giddy being the possibility. And and then Kaminga, like I didn't think Kaminga would make it. You know, like he, I thought he would go up higher and uh, and Moody. Kaminga like, was the one that scared the crap out of me. Because I'm like, if he's there, I think you have to. But, oh, my God, they could totally mess this up. Yeah, and to me, like, I'll go back to, like, my situation with, when it comes to some when it comes to Keegan Murray. Like, I liked Moses Moody, but I really didn't like Moses Moody at number nine. I, I thought that if you were getting Moody a little bit deeper, I still thought I would have taken him at nine. Um, I thought that there were teams that would take Davion above, uh, and Davion was all over the board. Like there were some people that slid him down as we approached the draft to like number 14, 15, 16. Um, and then there are other people who had him top four. So top five. It seemed like the two golden state picks were popular seven and 14. Yeah. For Davion. And it's like, I don't know, one of the two (laughs) somewhere between there. No, I, I thought so too. And then to see the Kings take him was was a bit of a shocker. But again, if I think the issue that the Kings had was number six is Giddy, number seven is Kaminga, and number eight is Franz Wagner, I think all three of those picks could have potentially been the guy if Davion had gone higher. Like the Kings would have, like they would have been more than happy with whoever fell to them at number nine. And did they like Davion? Sure. But like whoever was going to fall from that group, they probably would have selected. I know they like Giddy. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and this isn't a draft where, I, like, I don't think you move up in this draft. Like, I I like the no. top three, but again, like, we're talking about tier ones. And, you know, I think, when, I think this is the best way to, again, like, contextualize the uh, why this year may not have what they call a, a quote unquote tier one, right? We look at um, we look at Chet Holmgren and we say, okay, some people see Kevin Durant and other people are like, oh, you're absolutely crazy. He's more like like Kristaps Porzingis, right? But without the high end offensive potential. So again, a guy who probably will go number one or number two, but there's potential for him to not be a great scorer at the next level. We don't know. We'll have to wait and see what he looks like because he's he literally is such an outlier. But this is, I think, the best way to look at um, at like why this draft isn't considered like an elite elite draft, and that's because if you look at Paolo and you try to compare him to who he looks like at the next level, right? Who who would you who's your player comp? Um, I like uh, Julius Randall. Okay, who else? Is there anyone else? Like, have you heard like some of the other player comps? Um, you know, I they don't come to mind off the top of my head, but it's those like jumbo initiators. Um, yeah, but more of a fluid. Like he's a six foot ten. Like yeah, uh, like the guy that I that I've heard people compare him to is Blake Griffin. Yeah, yeah, I think Detroit Blake Griffin. Um, makes okay. sense because he doesn't have like the bounce you know and I think Detroit Blake Griffin is better than people remember for like a year there when he became a really good passer and yeah a decent three-point shooter um yeah I, I definitely I see it 
Okay, so if we're going to compare him to Blake Griffin, but not Clippers Blake Griffin, Detroit Blake Griffin, and the difference is that Clippers Blake Griffin is, like, nearing superstar potential and, like, production. He had injury issues, but we're talking about a guy who really was exceptional, right? Um, Well, that's not Paolo. Paolo doesn't have that bounce. So, like, if, if Blake and him were in the same draft you would push him down to like a third, fourth pick. And so that's where I think that we can, like you can draw a clear line of where we see this draft, where you can see a player who looks like a player, but doesn't have this, that, and that little bit is what separates him being from being a potential all-star player to a potential superstar player. And, and I really do think that that's where we can kind of look at this draft that it has outside of, again, like, Chad Holmgren is going to be one of the biggest outliers that we see coming into the league in a long time. We we really are projecting every single thing. You have no idea how he's going to hold up against. I mean, he weighs less than Jaden Ivey. Jeez. He's he's 15 pounds less than Evan Mobley. And there's a lot of conversation with Mobley's going to get bullied. And Mobley was uh, 7 foot 215? 215? Mm-hmm. Well, they don't list Chet at 200, do they? I think he's listed. I think it's 195. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just absolutely, that's crazy. I mean, he's seven foot tall, 195. Yeah. So, there's yeah. There's probably four guys in the last draft, maybe maybe more, that I think would have gone number one, would go number one in this year's draft. Yeah. I mean, Chet's going to be in that conversation. Like you said, He's he's an outlier. I think it just... It depends how people feel, right? But yep, yeah, like Cade Cunningham, Jalen Green, Evan Mobley, Scotty Barnes, Josh Giddy, like, yeah, I, I think all players that would be in the conversation for number one in this year's draft. That's interesting. And almost every guard in this draft in the top fifteen weighs more than Chet. <laughs> like almost every single guard. Like that's it's crazy. Yeah. So so look, we're looking at a a potential game changer, but also like a a complete unknown. And and we keep hearing these things like, oh, there's so much more to him. You're going to see it. Like, he's so much better than what he was allowed to do, especially playing next to Drew Timmy and in a very right. concise system at Gonzaga. He's going to get to the pros, and people are going to be shocked. That's fine, but at the same time, like, like, he needs a lot of work in the weight room. And even still, I don't know that he has a body type that can actually gain a lot of weight. I mean, look at... I'm watching JaVale McGee out there. JaVale McGee is still a stick figure. Like, he's still lean, yeah. lean. So Kevin um, Durant couldn't do a single bench press rep, right? <laughs> but you're oh, talking yeah. about outliers, obviously. You know, there's the other oh, end. Oh, totally. Robert yeah. Woodard is benching the most on the team at the beginning of this year. Where is yeah, he now? I think Robert Woodard could actually bench uh, both Kevin Durant and Greg <laughs> Oden. Like, if they like were hanging on to each side, it'd have to be, like, really lopsided. But, um yeah, I, I think he could bench both of them, um, but that doesn't mean he, you know, can suit up and play basketball. Um, all right, so uh, good discussion today, Brendan. We're uh, we're building out like the framework of what mock drafts are going to look like. You're going to see mock draft point five from James. I think it's either going to be Friday or Saturday. It just depends on editing, how much editing goes into it, um, and we're going to start building from there. Uh, Brendan, do you have any final thoughts? Hopefully this doesn't take us into too much more conversation, but I want to ask you, 
in a redraft with the benefit of hindsight where we're at now, Kings are on the clock at nine. Do you take Davion Mitchell? Some of the other options, Zaire Williams, James Booknight, Chris Duarte, Moses Moody, Alperen Shingun, Trey Murphy. Probably not. I feel like it's hard to say yes. But, you know, if the things went the same way they did, like the, I'll just say the, like the hindsight of the Tristan Thompson deal if the Kings knew they were going to get Rashawn Holmes, they would not have done the Tristan Thompson deal for DeLon Wright uh, because they were worried they weren't going to be able to resign Rashawn. And they also were concerned that like, they didn't know that they were going to be able to lock up Alex Lynn either. I th- think that if they would have had DeLon Wright, they would have been a better team this year. Not a better team next year because DeLon Wright is a free agent and probably you know whether he would come back or not, who knows. Um but I, I, I do believe that the answer is probably no. It's probably no because, you know, again, if you were going to go for an older prospect like Chris Duarte made sense because he plays a position of need and he looks like a Dylan Brooks clone. Um, you know, there are players there that made, you know, Alperin Shingun, like you, you still don't know what he is, but like he doesn't make any sense at all with the Kings now because of Sabonis. Uh, but you're looking at a player who has sort of like some of the Sabonis skill set. Um, just he's not going to be, I don't think he'll ever be as good. Um, but yeah, there's there's some intrigue. I, I don't know. It's still tough because I think Davion is a, is a player who is going to be serviceable and is going to fit in your rotation and it can play with just about anybody and is going to be around for a long time, whether it's in the league or with the Kings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Davion's definitely the safe pick. I, I think that, I don't know that it'll be the most popular take, but I think there's close to 10 guys that I would have taken over Davion. Interesting. Interesting. I, I can't wait for seven, next season when Davion asked uh, Oh yeah. Asked Brendan <laughs> straight up, so who, who are those 10 guys? Yeah. Who are those 10 guys? I think six of the next, uh, the nine picked people picked after him, six of the nine. I think I would have. Who who are the six? So Zaire Williams was 10 after Davion. Easily would have done that. I would have done James Booknight. Um, Booknight to me was. Booknight has a knee issue. Just like. There's some questions about his long term. Okay. Yeah. Booknight was the same as like Kuminga for me, except Kuminga is a better version uh, or positionally, I guess, but more of like a, God, the talent is just so there that I think you might have to do it. He was the best player available to me, and I was surprised that he fell. Um, Josh. A Primo. lot of that was that was a knee. That was a knee issue that made that him fall. Sense. Like they, I think they said he he doesn't have any cartilage in one of his knees, or okay. very little cartilage. Interesting. And he didn't get much play in Charlotte this year. His best game was against the Kings. <laughs> Imagine um, that. Yeah. Shocker. Shocker. Josh Primo. I would take Davion Mitchell over Josh Primo. Chris Duarte. Um, I think they're the same type of prospect like they're the it's not just positionally archetype but yeah different positionally they're the safe pick mm-hmm. and i think duarte made more sense than davion um i would have taken moses moody Corey kisper is uh i don't know a tough one i was going back and forth with some of the king's Herald guys the other day and got very much reminded that kisper did not have a good year but i think 
archetype, like Kispert is exactly what the Kings need. Um, I'm okay. still probably taking Davion. That's, I know he's got the three, but I don't think he's me. got the D. Yeah. Yeah. I would yeah. still go Davion, but um, Alperen Shengun. I mean, this is like prior to Sabonis. I would have taken Shengun. I, I yeah liked the upside. Um, Trey Murphy is a guy I would take over Davion Mitchell. He's the three and D. He is a three and D player that the Kings yeah. need. And he's um, Pelicans, right? Yes. He, okay. he had a he had a decent game when they just beat the Suns. Yeah. In the second round of that. Um yeah, that that's where it stops for me. I really, really like Trey Mann as a player, but I understand how that fit doesn't make any sense in Sacramento. Yeah. Um I like Trey Mann coming into the draft too, but I, again I didn't I didn't see how he fit. Yeah. So But yeah. you know there's a lot of guys right after Davion. I was absolutely floored when that pick came in. Yeah. And it's worth noting, I, I I guess we glossed over it before we get out of here, like at the end of that um, clip that we played for Monty McNair, he says, regardless of position, which we very clearly have seen. You know, we've heard, I want to say all three of them publicly, De'Aaron Fox, Tyrese Halliburton, Davion Mitchell, say that, like, when that pick happened, you know, you look around the room and know one of these guys isn't going to be here. There's no way this works. But McNair seemingly willing to do it because, like, best player available, I guess? I, I still think it worked. It would have worked. I I don't understand why it wouldn't work because I I still look at Davion as a backup one uh, or a small two. I, yeah. I mean, who he can defend is different, but yeah, so. I see it. It's probably difficult for. I mean, I would imagine Davion Mitchell doesn't look at himself as a backup long term. You know, no, no. All right, well, we've dragged this thing out as long as humanly possible. This is the longest podcast in in recorded history of the King's Beat. Um, so let's just wrap it up for really now. quick uh, for now. Yeah. We're going to keep going longer. We're just going <laughs> to, no, I, that that's not the intent. Um, but I, I think it, what do, it does talk, tell you is that there's plenty of room to talk during the off season. There's plenty of things to discuss. Um, and we'll keep doing it. Um, so, uh, number one, uh, April 28th is off the record with the Kings beat virtual happy hour part five. I have not named it yet. Um, but we will have a guest, and I will announce that soon. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two, I fill out the survey. Um, I'll put a link in the YouTube channel as well. Uh, number three, um, KB Pod is your um, 15% discount code for the King's Beat merchandise shop, which is down below as well in uh, the YouTube uh, thing uh, in the YouTube description. Um, and outside of that, uh, we'll be back on, on Tuesday and we'll have another pod and we'll keep going, breaking down players, uh, going back and, and, you know, I think we'll probably take on Davion Mitchell next week. Um, but then on top of that, we're going to, uh, keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the, uh, the 2022 NBA draft, uh, mark your calendars. It's May 17th, I believe is the draft lottery and that will help us really shake down a lot of how the uh the top 10 will will kind of work out and you know where the kings are what that pick looks like um whether they're eight or they're seven whether they're one two three four i think moving down to nine is pretty tough to see two teams from nine from eight nine ten eleven moving up into the top four but you never know um yeah so 
Uh, that's going to do it for this edition of the King's Beat Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, it's a marathon. I get it. Uh, but we got lots to talk about. So for Brendan Nunez from the King's, uh, the King's Pulse Podcast and the King's Herald, I am James Ham, your King's Insider for ESPN 1320 and the King's Beat. See you on Tuesday. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.